And it came to pass, when all the kings which were on this side of Jordan in the hills and in the valleys and in all the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard thereof, they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work willily, and went and made as if they had been ambassadors, and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent and bound up, and old shoes and clouded upon their feet, and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal, and said unto him and to the men of Israel, We be come from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure ye dwell, with, ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye, and from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God, for we have heard of, of the fame of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go to meet, to meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants, therefore now make ye a league with us. This is our bread, which we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to you, to go unto you. And now, behold, it's dry and, mold, and it is moldy. And these bottles of wine, which we filled, were new. And behold, they be rent. And these are garments, and our shoes are become old, by reason of the very long journey. And the men took of their victuals, and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a league with them, to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And it came to pass, at the end of three days, after they had made a league with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors, and that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed, and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, and Sepharah, and Beeroth, and kirjath Jerem. And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of con the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the princes. But all the princes said unto the, all the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath which we swear unto them. And the princess said unto them, Let them live, but let them be hewers of stone, and drawers of water unto all the congregation, as the princes had promised them. And Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, 
saying, Wherefore have ye beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you, when ye dwell among us? Now therefore ye are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen, and hewers of wood, and drawers of water, for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants, how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land, and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you, and have done this thing. And now behold, we are in thine hand, as it seemeth good and right unto thee to do unto us, do. And so he did unto them, and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, that they slew them not. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation, and for the altar of the Lord, for even unto this day in the place which he should choose. Thank you, JP. <clears throat> so once again, we're picking up our journey with Joshua into the country that they have been promised as a possession. The first chapters, first eight chapters, we saw the crossing and then they went into some neighboring towns and uh, we saw some initial victories and also some defeats. God simply doesn't hand over the land on a platter and here it is. They do have to battle for it. They do have to obey his commandments. They are feasts to be kept and uh, there is uh, a much to do for the Israelites. And it sort of pictures the New Testament believers after being saved. There is a life to be lived and battles to be fought and commandments to obey. And we are battling the flesh, we're battling the world and the devil, and we see that encapsulated quite nicely in the book of Joshua. And uh, we see that cosmic conflict that rages today against the believer and against his church. And Satan, through human agents, will stir up people to, do, uh, to thwart the certain and immutable plans of God. <clears throat> so in the last sermon, we went, in chapter 8, we looked at the defeat of Ai. The whole nation afterwards uh, had been gathered on Mount Ebal, and the law was read. And the blessings and the curses, there was a great time of covenant renewal and there was an emphasis on the blessings and on the cursing and obedience and disobedience and once again the centrality of the word of God was placed central and impressed in a very memorable way. So in this chapter I've got three um, topics. One is the nations united against God. Two, Israel deceived a theory the oath kept. So in verse 1, we see immediately after that great worship full event on Mount Ebal, the reading of the law and the praising of God, we see there is a great opposition building against the people of Israel. Interesting that it's right after worship. Satan hates worship. Satan hates the reading of the law. And we see there is agitation among the heathens. And fierce resistance is given for the Israelites as they plot against God's people. <clears throat> Note in the end of verse 1, it says, They heard thereof. 
What did they hear of? Well, probably for certain, the defeat of Ai, but also that great gathering on that mountain where the law of God was read. And like Pharaoh of old, when he said to Moses, uh, who is the Lord that I shall obey? So are these kings not going out quietly. And how it pictures man's natural rebellion against God, man's long war against his word and against the anointed, the Lord Jesus. Think of Paul in Acts 4 when he uh, recites what David wrote. He says, Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, gathered together. And here in this first verse, you see that these kings, often serving different gods, often having their own squabbles and, and fights and uh, wars, they are uniting against a common cause. Maybe sometimes you're puzzled when you see certain groups uh, in this day and age working together, maybe with a political party. I'm always puzzled when I see Muslims working with liberals or NDPers. They have nothing in common, but of course, spiritually speaking, they do. They are similarly in a war against God and against his church. And then they will gang up together. <clears throat> So it's not that hard, because the devil will put opposing parties together to fight against God. He's always done that. Think of how the Sadducees and the Pharisees work together to uh, go against Christ. Think how Herod and Pilate, it was said, who used to be enemies, on that day they became friends. Over the death of Christ, on his blood, they became friends. So here we see at the beginning of a United Nations of some type, the gathering together, and at a later date we'll see how that pans out for them. And this is just after the renewal of the covenant, and after Israel has been blessed with the hearing of the word of God. So sometimes when there is a in our own life, spiritualized, when we have made strong resolution, when we may have maybe have been growing in the Lord, then particularly then we have fierce opposition by Satan, by the flesh, by the world, and how much wisdom there is needed for us to walk carefully and to follow the Lord Jesus, to follow the Lamb wheresoever he goes. These kings did not surrender, of course. They had heard of the miracles in, in Jericho and Ai, the crossing of the river, and and that how the Israel escaped Pharaoh. But they did not surrender. Similarly, with what fierceness did the early church experience this when they were persecuted, when they were scattered? Satan and rebellious men have continued to do so ever since to our brothers and sisters. And even this very morning, some are feeling that. They have been fought against. They have been imprisoned, tortured, given no place in society, and beaten. And there are other ways. 
that believers are opposed, of course, and fought against. More subtle, more with stealth and craftiness, slowly being conformed to this world, weakening of doctrines, given thought or ideas that are actually satanic, slowly conforming to the world by the weakening of doctrines. Views on merits, creation, salvation, the exclusivity of Christ, or how a church should operate, to name a few. Oh, how we need God's wisdom constantly. And are we aware of his devices? Satan is depicted in his word as a lion, fierce and bold, ready to devour. He can jump upon us. Or as a serpent, subtle, cunning, crafty, as he came to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so he still operates today. And Paul the apostle warns us, he said, lest Satan should have an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And again he said, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Think of the different ways he sought to subdue or thwart Christ on earth. He tried to get him in vain, of course, as the infants in that area were slaughtered through Herod. And he came to him as an angel of light with fair talk and promises. He worked through Judah that said Satan entered in him. And he thought, or Satan thought Judah had won the deal, but it bruised his heel. <clears throat> so we see in these verses a universal opposition against the people of God, and it will be so until the end. How foolish are we, that we can fight these things on our own strength. But also how foolish were these kings that they could fight against God. Shows you once again the, the wickedness. Now, apart from grace, we're all like that. We're all enemies of God. And apart from grace, we actually think we can fight against him and win against him. So all of us are that by nature, by birth, we're fallen. We think we can outsmart him, fight him, and as our first parents did, we think we can hide. Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So in these first two verses, we see the gathering storm that the nation will have to face, and we'll look at that in subsequent chapters. Point two is Israel deceived. So some of these nations had some type of conference. They'd gotten together to plan a coordinated attack. But somewhere in that time frame or soon afterwards, the leaders of Gibeon were not so convinced they could win. They seemed to abandon the group and came up with a different plan themselves. They sought some type of peace to their credit. Um, you think that for, for, sorry, you have to think that the record of Israel was pretty good so far in winning battles. There was that setback in Ai, but eventually had won the city. The great walls of Jericho had crumbled supernaturally, and so had the waters parted supernaturally. And they knew about this. And they also had defeated the cities across the Jordan and somehow escaped Egypt. 
So their plan was to deceive and save their lives in some other way. Verse 4. King James talks about wilyly, which means craftiness or deception, supply, trickiness. They came up with a different story from what the truth was. They made themselves appear as ambassadors from a far country, a smaller group. It wasn't the whole nation that came, but they sent some representatives, as you can see in verse 11. Even though they only lived only about 10 miles away or so. In verse 4 and 5, it shows you that they put some effort in this process. And uh, it was well rehearsed. They make it look like their luggage was old. Their shoes were worn out. The wine bottles, which were in sheepskin at that time, had been patched up. Some of them were broken. They even took old bread that was moldy and stinky and dry so that it indeed would at first, looked like they were from a faraway lamp, land. <clears throat> in verse 6, we see that Joshua and Israel have now gone back to the original camp at Gilgal. That's where they had first crossed and set up camp. And that's where they had renewed that ceremony, uh, the circumcision and the Passover. And they were back in that place once again. And there, they meet up with Joshua and the men or the elders of Israel. And as soon as they meet, they utter a lie that they are from a far country, they're, they're neighbors. And they had to convince Joshua that they were not from this area. Why was this? Well, Joshua had been given very clear instructions about the inhabitants of Canaan, hadn't he? Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 and 2. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whether thou goest in possession, and have cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them or show mercy to them. And the main reason was given in Exodus 33, they shall not dwell with in thy land, lest, thou, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Their bad lifestyles, examples could, and they did, draw them into idolatry. This would be the consequence of letting them, consequence of dwelling them into the land. They would be drawn away into false worship, worship their idols, to which they were so naturally prone. Look, the text says, I will it will surely be a snare unto thee. The note, note the Lord will say, it will surely be a snare unto you. He knew their weakness, their proneness to wander away. How serious do you and I take the warnings in Scripture to stay away from things that could be a snare unto us, like fishes in a net we cannot get out. Or do you think, that's not me. I can get very close, it will not affect me. How important it is to be aware of the sin that so easily beset us. How easily are we infected by a worldly view of things? 
worldly thinking on many different things has infected the church rather than looking through biblical glasses. How many, on how many issues have we gone to the world for advice, ignorant of what God has said about it, and we have adopted slowly but surely into our lives? Well, what is the reaction of Joshua to these people? And from verse 7, it says that these were Hivites. This account is written many years after this event. And the fact is that the inhabitants of Gideon were also called Hivites. In Joshua verse 11, verse 19, it says, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gideon. All other they took in battle. It's interesting to note that 400 years or so before, in Genesis 34, the sons of Jacob, two in particular, had deceived the inhabitants of Shechem. One of them had raped Dinah, their sister, and he was a Hivite. Remember, the sons of Jacob had gone to them, and they pretended they wanted to build a league with them. He said, we can, we can trade, we can marry each other's daughters, and so on but you should be circumcised, and then we can do all this. Well, on the third day after the circumcision, they came and they slew many of the men in the city. Jacob had been very displeased and had reprimanded his sons for this. So now we see many years later, the sons of Shechem kind of doing the same great reversal and doing the same to the Israelites. Now, Joshua is not immediately convinced that these men are telling the truth, and he asks some further questions to them. How will this leak look like, he says. Where are you from? And who are you? Joshua knew the word of God. He knew that it was strictly forbidden to leave the locals to themselves, let alone make a covenant with them. He was not sinning willfully in this case. And then again, once again, they lied. Notice they answer not the question, or they say very little about where they came from or where they were from. They evade these questions. But they know that they're from a very far country. They knew what Moses was told, what he should do with the locals, as you can see later in verse 24. Maybe they stressed also that they were from a very far country because there was provision made in Deuteronomy 20. You can read that from 10 to 18 to make peace with other cities provided they were not from the nations of Canaan. That was okay, but not with the locals. They piously speak and humbly speak to Joshua and even say, we'll be your servants. Not only that, they speak as though they were quite taken in with the, the wonders of God, how he had taken them out of Egypt and how they had taken care of some cities beyond the Jordan. Of course, they cleverly not mention anything about Ai and Jericho because that may 
spoil the beans that they already have heard about what happened locally. And they say, we are come because of the name of the Lord thy God. Sounds good, doesn't it? They have a bit of a, a theological reason, as one commentator puts it, for coming there. But they use deceit, flattery, from where they come from, and they told lies. Psalm 12, verse 2. <clears throat> they speak flattery, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. The man, the Lord, shall cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speaketh proud things. They mention that the elders have sent them to make a league, a covenant with you. The bread and the bottles are shown. They point to their clothes and their shoes, how worn out they are from the very long journey. Verse 12, 13. Appealing to their senses. Behold, see, look at this. In verse 15, we see the leaders, Joshua and the elders, taking some of the items. They probably looked at them, examined them closely, see if they were true. So we see that Joshua wasn't totally careless in this setup against him by the Gibeonites. He did ask some questions, and he did examine things. But it was done in haste. Why the haste? Why not wait a few weeks, especially if you have an oath to the Lord involved in it? But he did neglect the most important thing, and that is really the heart of this story here, the heart of the fault of what happened here in verse 14. And it said, and he asked not the counsel at the mouth of the Lord. It was not his sin only, but also the sin of the other elders of Israel. None said, let's wait. None, none said, let's seek the Lord. Let's seek or test whether these things are so. They acted by sight. They didn't act by the word of God. They asked some good questions. But that's where it stopped. They did not pray about it. They acted naturally, not spiritually, as A.W. Pink puts it. David, often in Samuel, in contrast to Saul, King Saul would ask the Lord many times, shall I go up to battle? Shall I do this, yes or no? <clears throat> and the answer would have been there for Joshua as well. In Numbers 27, verse 11, Moses had told them, you've got Eleazar the priest. Go to him for questions like this. The, the Lord will answer you. The Lord would have graciously provided him with an answer. The high priest was there. He was the mouth of God, and they had that curious instrument, the Urim and the Thummim, which they would wear, and involves two stones, and basically through that, the Lord answered yes or no question. So the enemy did not come with chariots or with battering rams or with swords, but with lies and deceptions they snuck and secured themselves a peace treaty and a covenant with Joshua and with the elders. We notice that this also was not the first time that Joshua had not 
seek counsel from the Lord. He had done this before in chapter 7 when the men of Israel came to Joshua and said, well, the city Ai is small. We don't need, we don't need everybody here. It's, it's going to be an easy thing. He had listened to them. He had not sought counsel, and they were defeated. They were beaten down and chased out of the area. <clears throat> so he trusted in the strength the first time, and now he trusted in his own wisdom. Important for us, right? Trust in your own strength or trust in your own wisdom. How dangerous that is. How easy it is to follow our own wisdom. Trust our own insights and not seek the Lord. When we are at a place where wisdom is needed. James writes, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. That giveth to all men liberally, readily easily, lots, and operate it not, and it shall be given them. How often do we do our own things and later suffer the consequences? I'm sure we all have it where we've done something and we looked at, well, I didn't really pray about this. And it turned out to be really a disaster. Look again at that promise of James. Ask for wisdom and it shall be given unto you. Our needs are still the same today, aren't they? We need God's help to conquer a lost world for him, to subdue our own sins that so easily beset us. We need wisdom from above, and we need discernment. We need to be guided by his word and by his spirit to know what to do. Not all issues are as black and white as thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not murder. Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. <clears throat> Notice, too, how great men like Joshua have besetting faults, and they are in the end but men at best. The war on our own sin and sanctification starts when we are made a new creature and it doesn't end until we reach glory, isn't it? It was not a deliberated, calculated sin like D David did with Bathsheba and later the murder with Uriah as an example, but it was an example of someone being overtaken by a fault and it did have consequences. Throughout the Old Testament, even Nathan the prophet gave advice from his own heart when David asked him about building a house for the Lord. He said, yeah, sure, do whatever is in your heart and the Lord shall bless you. And the Lord had to straighten him out. Think of Abraham, that great man of faith, going down into Egypt and lying about his wife, Sarah, and was reprimanded for it. And he did it again, threw her again under the bus, poor Sarah. But praise God for the protection that he supplied for her, even in the midst of foolish decisions. Think of Peter denying the Lord Jesus, repented of it, he denied the Lord to a little girl, and later in Galatians, he again had to be straightened out by Paul when he was fearing the Judaizers. These were great saints, they walked with God for many years, and yet they had 
besetting faults and mistake, <clears throat> showing that all of us are at best weak and easily misled. So a good lesson for us to be careful with our own reasoning, with common sense, well this is common sense, or being wise in our own eyes. Paul writes about the Old Testament narratives. Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh that he standeth, take it heed lest he fall. Now, verse 15, the Gibeonites got what they wanted. The sentence of death was removed. The sting of death, what they felt, was removed, and peace was secured. Maybe some official ceremony was held of some type. And the name of the Lord was invoked in an oath, as we see in verse 19. So, an oath involving the Lord and binding them to it was most unwise, and again it was done in haste. The great difference between Rahab, which we saw a few chapters earlier, and these Gibeonites, <clears throat> is that Rahab had a true heart change. She loved the God of Israel, and it showed by the fruits. Remember how she risked her own lives for despise. She got rid of her pagan idol, idols and she worshipped and she would play a major role in the life of the nation. Later on, of course, she would end up in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. But nothing can be seen of that in this crowd. It was purely deception to preserve life and we don't blame them for that. We see this hypocrisy in the early church as well with Ananias and Sapphira whose heart was not really in it. Simon the sorcerer was rebuked by Peter for pretending to be something that he was not. <clears throat> How careful ought we to be not to pretend or to make ourselves look better than we are. A.W. Pink writes, we have a lot of the Gibeonites in our heart and how we should examine ourselves. How easy it is to make ourselves a little bit more spiritual. Pretend we're reading more in the word than we actually do or pray more than we actually do. It's easy to make ourselves look good. Number three is the oath kept. Well, in our last chapter, <clears throat> in this last section of this chapter, the deception is found out Surely, the Bible says, your sin will find you out sometimes a long time after, sometimes in eternity. Sooner or later, it will be found out. Verse 16 says that after three days, already, maybe that's a mercy, uh, to their surprise, the Israelites found out that these are their neighbors. They're not faraway neighbors. These are their neighbors from a couple miles down the street. These are dwellers in the land where they should have been destroyed and obliterated and all their pagan wickedness with them. So imagine the surprise the Israelites had when they found this out. I'm not sure what the Gibeonites were thinking because they knew that eventually this would be found out. I mean, they lived close by, but perhaps they were 
banking on that piece of paper that was signed or the, the memory of the, of the occasion, but found out they did. And you can imagine the surprise of Joshua and the elders, the fear and the worry they would have had towards God of where they had gotten themselves into. Verse 17, we see a bunch of Israelites went down to see for themselves. There were four cities of which Gibeon was the main settlement, the largest one. We find it out in the next chapter as well. And it becomes clear that some of these children of Israel are ready to go fight and to go smite them, to slaughter them once for all. They knew the word of God, and they had read it a few days ago. They had been reminded of it. They know it needed to be obeyed. Perhaps some of them were eager to get some new loot, some new gold and silver and property and so on, which they could keep now. But because of the oath, the princes of Israel said they could not. Verse 19, we have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. <clears throat> they were not going to add further wrong to what was done and slaughter them anyway. And the result and the fruit that Joshua had to deal was there was murmuring in the congregation. There was grumbling. And that hadn't happened yet since Moses had died. So this was the fruit of his carelessness of him and the, lever, uh, and the leaders, but yet it was a mild reproof from the Lord. Notice there was no way that they would give in to the people's request to let them fight these Gibeonites. They had sworn an oath, and they had used God's holy name in it. He said in verse 20, lest the wrath be upon us. They did not want the name of the Lord to be associated with broken oaths or giving a wrong picture to the outside world that God cannot be trusted, that he is not reliable, that he is not trustworthy. Maybe carnal reasons would have said, well, it was made on false pretenses. Yes, it was, and that was their own mistake, wasn't it? It was done in haste, and it was ill-advised. <clears throat> and we know that God agreed with it because years later, when King Saul kills some of the Gibeonites, a famine came upon Israel for three years. And King David had to deal with it. And seven of Saul's family were killed, and the famine was lifted. Not a king even had a liberty just to break an oath. <clears throat> the murmuring people are promised that they would get something out of it. They would be servants to Israel and the official haulers of wood and water, verse 21. Notice when Joshua confronts them about what they had done in verse 22 and why they had lied to them, he doesn't let sin go unchallenged. He goes and confronts it. And there he also pronounces a curse on them, that they would be haulers of wood and water for the temple of God. And look how they answer honestly this time. It was out of fear. They were under the sentence of death. They knew that their days were numbered. 
since they know, they knew sometimes the scriptures better than the people of Israel did that Moses had told them, they were to destroy all the inhabitants. They were afraid and had resorted to this scheme. But, verse 27, they placed themselves into the hands of Joshua and told them, do what you think is right with us. And so, admitting their guilt. Even though they went about it in the wrong way and their knowledge of God is small, one thing they knew that there was no escape from certain death. They tried something and they had the beginnings of the fear of God, which is the beginning of knowledge. Their lives would be spared, even though they would live under a curse, in a sense. And yet, as Ralph Davis puts it in his commentary, there's a hint of redemption in it for them. For years later that were to come, they would serve God in his temple, and even after the Babylonian exile, you would find them back in Jerusalem rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah says there was 95 of them. They turned to be a blessing to Israel. They became a visible blessing to them for many years to come. God in his sovereignty uses these people who sought at first to bring probably pagan worship into the land, and now he uses them for the worship of his temple in his house, to keep the fires of the altars burning, to keep that water flowing of the ritual cleaning. What does Psalm 8410 say? For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Yes, there's sin, and their indiscretion, there were there was sins and indiscretion on both sides, and they were dealt with and exposed. Yet a blessing came out of it. God is over all our failures and our sin, and He can make a curse into a blessing and make our sin a way that He draws us to Himself, isn't it? How many Gibeonites came to faith over the centuries that followed the scripture doesn't say. But God overrules all. They were there in the temple, close to the high priest, close to all the items in the temple that pointed to that great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they could ask questions. Maybe like Rahab, that fellow Canaanite they had, they came to have true faith in God. <clears throat> and saw faith in all that the temple sacrifices pointed to. Because of the oath, they were saved. Joshua saved them from death. The one they had feared had become their savior. In the next chapter, you'll see that they call upon him. They are now despised by other nations because of what they have done. They have gone to the enemy. And they are surrounded. And what did they say to Joshua? They say, Joshua, come and help your servants. Slack not. Come and help us quickly and save us and help us. And Joshua did that. And we see that in the next chapter. They would now have a friend in Joshua. <clears throat> and how again in this chapter we see gospel truths. They were sinners. They were greatly alarmed. 
They are under that sentence of death. They pleaded for themselves, not knowing what else to do. Doing it in the wrong way, yes. But they were aware of the wrath of God and their great need. And they were graciously spared because of the oath. And they were saved unto service. They served and were consecrated for the rest of their lives, holy to God and his temple and his people. If we have gone to Christ, we have that gospel oath. We have that acceptance, that covenant, that promise that so whosoever believeth on him is passed from death unto life. He that comes to our greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, shall never be cast out. Joshua secured and guaranteed the deliverance of these Gibeonites. Have you gone to the one Lord, to the one that the Lord has appointed for the ultimate salvation? Is his blood your only hope? Is his righteousness your only dress? Hebrews 6, and I'll close with this, Hebrews 6, Verse 16. <clears throat> for men swear, verily swear, by the greater, and an oath for confirmation to them is an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable, immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, our only hope is your Son. Father, we thank you for him that loved us and gave himself for sinners. Father, even we can recognize ourselves in this Gibeonites, Lord. We are at heart liars. We are at heart deceivers, hypocrites in various ways. And Lord, um, would you, with that awareness of our sin, help us to look to him who is our righteousness. He is our only dress, our only hope, that gospel oath. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.